0: Welcome to Twill, The Week in Health Law, the lifestyle podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 18th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. On this special Frank-less episode, I'm joined by Professor Wendy Mariner, the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law at Boston University School of Public Health. She's also Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law and Professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Big welcome back to the pod, Wendy.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So there's a simple explanation for my interruption of your week. Uh, Yesterday, we received the final rules from EEOC under the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, and the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, Gina, on employer wellness plans, an increasingly controversial subject. So what we have here is some serious regulatory spaghetti. Uh, we have multiple agencies and several interlocking statutes. Uh, these include Title I of the ADA, Title II of GINA, uh, non-discrimination provisions under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, as amended by the Affordable Care Act, and in the case of some plans, the HIPAA privacy, security, and breach notification provisions. The matrix of these employer-provided or sponsored wellness plans is similarly complex. The plan may be a participation-only program. You know, um, go join a gym if you want to. Or it could be health contingent. And if it's a health contingent program, it may be just dependent on taking an activity, or it could be dependent on some kind of outcome, such as uh, reducing your BMI. Now, to stop employees sort of doing a Homer Simpson Shrugging their shoulders and heading off to the sofa with a pack of reds and a quart of Ben and Jerry's. Employers, of course, want to integrate penalties or incentives into these wellness plans. And several issues fall out of all this. Um, Are these plans voluntary given incentives and penalties? And why does that matter? Um, What must the plan seek to do? What are its goals and purposes? Or what should be its goals and purposes? And what happens to the data collected through uh, health risk assessments, which are HRAs? biometric screenings, employer provided Fitbits and so on. So Wendy, what are the answers to all of that?
1: The answers are they don't work. Um, Well, pardon me for being a little bit Skeptical about these programs, I I know that the EEOC was trying very hard to harmonize rules um, with the ACA and HIPAA and GINA, uh, but it was confronted with the question of how to reconcile the Americans with Disabilities Act prohibition on employers asking employees about a medical condition unless it's job related for the position and consistent with medical necessity, or the employee voluntarily sense to offer information or take a medical exam Uh, with the idea that uh, there are incentives being offered to employees to join these wellness programs. And so the question was, are there incentives that could be deemed to be voluntary and not coercive on the part of the employee? Um, The new rules that the EOC studied say basically, yes, Uh, this has been a controversial rule. There were almost uh, 200, I mean, 2,750 comments. Full disclosure, I submitted some on behalf of about a dozen health law faculty, including, I'm happy to say, uh, Professor Terry. And the new rule has some uh, positive effects, but some disappointments for those of us who are concerned about fair treatment, especially for more disadvantaged employees the new rule says that an incentive is voluntary Um, if it's either a reward or a penalty that's good because these are really two sides of the same coin if you get a $200 discount uh, for signing up with a wellness program a $200 discount on your health insurance it's really the same thing as uh, paying $200 more if you don't sign up Uh, so what the amount of the penalty can be is now harmonized with the ACA uh, under the EEOC's new rule, and that is it may not be more than 30% of the total premium, both employer and employee contributions for individual coverage. So 30% rule applies to all workplace wellness programs, whether they're offered um, to employees who are enrolled in an employer-sponsored group health plan, whether they're offered to employees, whether or not they enroll in a health plan or whether they're offered as a benefit of employment when the employer does not offer any group health plan. So across the board, workplace wellness programs are being treated similarly.
0: This idea of voluntariness, is this consistent with the rather controversial case of EEOC against Flambeau?
1: An excellent, excellent question. Um, That's exact, one of the concerns was the case of Flambeau in which Flambeau Corporation uh, made a health risk assessment and biomedical screening, a condition of um, entering into the employer's health plan. And the employer, uh, the one employee failed to complete the health risk assessment and was denied enrollment in the employer's health plan. He was then told he could pay full price for a separate COBRA coverage. Um, EEOC sued Flambeau and at the end of December in 2015, lost before the Western District Court in Wisconsin. That case is now on appeal and is frankly, a a very uh, very troubling sort of case because the, um, the district court found that having participation in a wellness program or filling out this health risk assessment and screening uh, qualified as permissible under the ADA's Safe Harbor provision. Uh, the Safe Harbor says that an insurer or a third-party administrator is not prohibited from, and I quote, establishing, sponsoring, observing, or administering the terms of a bona fide benefit plan based on underwriting risks, classifying risks, or administering such risks. That are based on or not inconsistent with state law. Essentially, what the court said was that evaluating someone's health risks could be helpful in um, in administering the health plan. The um, the EOC's new rule effectively thumbs its nose at the district court's decision. The EOC's new rule says the safe harbor provision does not apply to wellness programs that include disability-related questions or medical exams. But if the EEOC loses on appeal and the appeals court finds that the safe harbor can apply to eligibility, then a lot of this new rule collapses. Um, if the court were to say that the EOC is incorrect in its um, interpretation of the safe harbor we could see employers requiring HRAs and medical exams as a condition of enrolling in health plans. That would be particularly troubling and uh, an easy way for employers to keep persons that wish to keep their health care information private out of the group health plans entirely.
0: So what would be the best case scenario on appeal? That the appellate court would show some deference to the agency interpretation?
1: Yes, I think think there's a good argument for that. I think the EOC has briefly summarized it in the rule. Um, arguably at best, this is an ambiguous provision that the agency should be able to interpret reasonably under Chevron. Um, in addition, much of the reason for the safe harbor was to permit insurance companies to underwrite their health plans. And in now with the ACA and HIPAA rules, much of the uh, much of those underwriting tools are really no longer relevant for uh, for creation of health plans, the group health plans in particular. For example, no pre-existing condition provision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So much of what would normally be useful to an insurer to create actuarially fair premiums is no longer permissible, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's a separate question as to whether or not um, eligibility for enrolling in the plan could be based on one's health status or on establishing, by virtue of completing a health risk assessment, what one's risks are if the insurer cannot take that into account in setting premiums. So I think the EOC has a good argument. So let's assume for the moment that the EEOC will win on appeal and the safe harbor provision is not a problem. Uh, let's consider how the new rule affects employees who want to enroll in health insurance plans. Uh, if an employer offers a wellness program that offers an incentive, be it a penalty or a reward, that incentive can go up to 30% of the total premium for a single person. And that is considered under the new rule to be voluntary. It does bring up the sort of inherent inconsistency in the ACA on which this is based, because it is designed to make sure that everyone pays the same price for insurance with a couple of exceptions for age and tobacco. Um, And yet, and that no one is denied coverage because of health status, but with the wellness programs, you are indeed importing a kind of um, risk classification into the program and charging someone a different premium. Uh, yet this is considered voluntary under the new rule. I, I think it's interesting. I thought Mary Levine from Politico uh, reported that Jennifer Mathis, told Morning Shift that it was really a stretch to say that it's voluntary if your choice not to answer is going to cost you several thousand dollars. I mean, a 30% penalty could be, assuming the average across the country, a 30% penalty could be $1,800. That's about 12.5% Twelve and a half percent of total pre-tax income for a minimum wage employee. Um, after taxes, that employee might have to live on ten thousand dollars a year, which wouldn't even pay rent in many cities in the country. And for tobacco cessation wellness programs, the incentive can be fifty percent of the total insurance premium. So this is not a small um, a small dollar amount. Most companies so far that offer incentives offer much lower incentives. But with this imprimatur, I think it's open season on going up to the full 30%. So why are, why are we doing all of these wellness programs? I mean, wellness programs gain popularity as a way to improve employee health by preventing chronic illnesses and thereby saving future medical care costs. I think both these assumptions are wildly optimistic. Let's take cost savings first. Almost all economists agree that with some exceptions, hypertension, medication, immunizations, preventive care does not save total healthcare costs and does not save total lifetime costs. You have to spend money on everyone in the population to prevent illness in a small number of people. And the costs of prevention are often more than the costs you save. And the real kicker, and this is disturbing for most of us in public health, is that um, healthy people live longer, but they still get sick and die. Uh, Usually after they've received social security and incurred a lot of orthopedic and end of life medical costs, typically paid by Medicare. Now this doesn't mean we shouldn't prevent illness. Good health is valuable in its own right, but usually our public health policy is justified as a way to save money it's not going to do that but that's the purpose that wellness programs were implemented and that's why they're an exception in the ACA Um, there have been a few controlled uncontrolled studies usually that find some savings often in the form of less absenteeism or higher productivity and maybe a slight reduction or little or no increase in health insurance premiums but not many um, the studies are difficult to evaluate and compare. It's not clear who enrolled in the program, maybe only the healthy folks. And it's often not clear who is saving the money. Is it only the employer who saves money? Is it total costs that are saved? Um, ACA, The ACA provision that was included was nicknamed the Safeway Amendment, as you may recall. It was based on Safeway's claim that the company's health care costs flatlined after it adopted a wellness program. Well, that claim turned out to be a myth. Um, the plan, covered less than 9% of its employees, most of them at corporate headquarters. Um, The the company itself may have saved money, but interestingly, at the same time, it increased the employee share of health insurance premiums from 20% of the premium to 55% of the premium. So the employer share of the premium went down from 80% to 45%. Now Safeway has what? A quarter of a million employees? Imagine if they all were part of this plan and saved money, that would be half a billion dollars. Presumably not all the employers were eligible for the all the employees were eligible for the plan. So my point here is it's not really surprising, and there's a lot of data to support it, that the major criticism of employer wellness programs is that they really are shifting health insurance costs from the employer to
0: the employee. So there's there's the counter narrative, right? Um, that this actually fits in with the uh, the reality of some of the um, post ACA issues that we have thin networks and higher deductibles and so on and so forth. Um, and this may be just another way for, for costs to be shifted away from employers and their insurers, um, to, uh, the plan participants, the employees, um, I mean, would you go so far as to sort of, uh, you know, characterize what's going on these wellness plans and the companies that are providing them as as sort of benefiting from a rent seekers charter?
1: well. Yes, you can't blame the employers for trying to control or reduce their health care costs. And I think many of them really believe that it will save money. And maybe they will believe that it improves employees' health. Um, but what else have they got at that moment? I mean, they're really grasping at straws to try and control costs if we are not, in fact, going to go directly into the price mm-hmm. of care. Um, and they are being enormously encouraged by the health promotion industry, the growth in the number of companies that provide these wellness program services to employers and to insurers is, is remarkable. We The industry is expected to earn $8 billion this year. And with this rule, I suspect that that estimate is an understatement. You can't entirely blame people though, if, the, if it looks like a program that will save them money will also do good for their employees. But that brings us to the question of, of whether these programs actually improve health uh, on the part of employees. And here again, the evidence is, Fixed at best. Um, we had hoped that the EEOC would require in a minimum that employers plans have some evidence that the design they choose, has demonstrated improved health outcomes or disease prevention in credible studies in similar populations uh, because if there's no evidence that these programs actually improve health outcomes, there's really no justification for imposing incentives to encourage participation. The health promotion industry is typically paid on a per capita basis. That is, they get a fee for each employee that enrolls in the wellness program, but by and large, employees, not many employees enroll voluntarily, on average, maybe 15, at most 20% without some kind of financial incentive. And so the health promotion industry naturally encourages the imposition of incentives to increase the number of enrollees in the wellness programs, which is clearly to their financial advantage.
0: So if I'm an employer, even one that, that believes in this, can I just go and buy a sort of a, any old off-the-shelf the plan plan? Uh, and, and throw it down on the table?
1: Well, in theory, no, but in practice, perhaps, yes. Um, the definition uh, under the new rule of an employee health program is that it must, well, that is a disability-related inquiry or a medical exam, must be reasonably designed to promote health or prevent disease. That's it. There are a few caveats, um, but there is nothing in the proposed rule that requires that there be any proof that the program is designed to promote health or prevent disease. Moreover, it's not clear who the employer has to demonstrate this if anyone. I mean, maybe an employee could challenge it, uh, but good luck with that. And the only caveats are that the program should not be overly burdensome, not a subterfuge for violating the ADA, and not highly suspect in the methods chosen to promote health or prevent disease.
0: And that's the kind of language you could see supporting an employer summary judgment, for example.
1: I think probably so. The one description that the definition contains is the following. A program consisting of a measurement, test, screening, or collection of health-related information without providing results, follow-up information, or advice designed to improve the health of participating employees is not reasonably designed to promote health unless the collected information actually is used to design a program that addresses at least a subset of the conditions identify. Now, what that rather boring gobbledygook suggests is that as long as you provide the results of the tests back to the employee, you're fine. Or as long as you create a program that is designed to prevent problems that have arisen in your population, which are probably obesity, high cholesterol, or something like that, then you're fine. Um, it So I think that it is so easy to meet this test as long as there is. There needs not be any hard evidence of the design of the program actually preventing disease or improving health outcomes. Now, there's one final caveat, which I think is kind of difficult to interpret. A program is not reasonably designed if it exists mainly to shift costs um, to the employees.
0: How would they have ever have got that idea?
1: It's it's a lovely notion and I think in your words, it's entirely aspirational. I mean, let's face it, all these programs that have rewards or penalties shift cost to the employees. That's what they do. And the new rule says that a shift of 30% of the entire premium is not counted as involuntary and presumably would not count as a cost shift unless there were some extreme circumstances that proved this was the only reason for it. So it's hard for me to understand how one could prove that the purpose of this is to shift costs when an inappropriate purpose to shift costs when the programs are designed to shift costs with
0: a 30% rule. So let's move the conversation on a little bit to the data that's being collected. The regulation in, what is it, 1630-14D, for those of you following along at home, has sort of three pieces that are are, are worth talking about or at least noting, I guess. First of all, there has to be a special privacy notice now, if you like, um, what information is being collected and why. Um And we know how useful privacy notices are, don't we? Secondly, the information obtained, um, and I'm quoting here, regarding the medical information or history of any individual may only be provided to an ADA-covered entity in aggregate terms that not, do not disclose or are not reasonably likely to disclose the identity of any employee. And that, of course, raises, if you like, the cast light uh, issue uh, that Fortune magazine and others looked at fairly recently. Um, how do you solve the aggregate data problem and confidentiality in a relatively small company or say where only a relatively small number of employees are of childbearing age or some such? And then the third piece is uh, the data sharing piece. Uh, quote, a covered entity shall not require an employee to agree to the sale, exchange, sharing, transfer, or other disclosure of medical information, or to waive any confidentiality protections in this part as a condition for participating in a wellness program or for earning an incentive. So let me start with a question for you, Wendy, um, which I think, uh, uh, rolls back a little bit on an observation you made with regard to another provision earlier, which is, who's going to enforce this?
1: That's an excellent question. Um, The the EEOC seems to think that perhaps an employee could complain to Um, the Department of Health and Human Services who might take action against the covered entity. Um, I find that to be somewhat unlikely. Um, Certainly the employee would have to know. And uh, HHS has a lot more important problems on its plate than necessarily dealing with the disclosure of information in this kind of plan. It does assume that um, the covered entity will behave properly and conform to all the rules and keep the information confidential, but it's hard to unknow something particularly as you point out in a small firm um, where the information may in fact be obvious who the employee is um, particularly when you're collecting a lot of of personal information these are particularly concerned with the health risk assessments often coupled with blood pressure tests blood and urine tests for cholesterol blood sugars lipids Etc., um, online questionnaires about possible health risks, tobacco use, BMI, medications. Some may ask about sexually transmitted infections, fertility, contraception use, plans for pregnancy, even abortions. That kind of pos- questions was what provoked outrage on the part of the faculty at Penn State a few years ago. You know, most employees who are offered wellness programs don't have the clout to resist an employer's decision like an organized faculty at a university does. I what? Went- I, I like to uh, refer to Mark Rothstein's comment that this is really a privacy tax because lower-wage employees really can't afford to say no to these kinds of programs, especially with high-dollar incentives.
0: Yes, well stated, Mark. So let's finish, Wendy, by um, going up to like 5,000 feet maybe. And what's, what's missing from these programs? What what should be driving these kind of programs and generally prevention Policies?
1: Well, what's missing from the typical wellness program is attention to what are undoubtedly the fundamental causes of chronic illness, which tend not to be obesity and lipids and things like that, but stress, low wages variable working hours, workplace hazards, transportation difficulties, child care, family leave, sick leave, housing problems. These are all extremely well studied health risks um, and improving them. There's a good deal of correlation between education and uh, the kinds of jobs one can get and the kinds of stresses that one is exposed to at lower paying jobs and health outcomes. Uh, There's more and more study on this, but wellness programs seem to focus on tobacco use, exercise and diet with a little bit of cholesterol and blood sugar and the like, which suggests that the real problem with unhealthy people in this country is that they're fat and smoking and sitting on the couch. Uh, But I don't think that indeed we will solve the population level health problems if we simply try to target weight. I mean, weight is a classic problem um, and it may simply be a social prejudice hiding behind the pretense that we're concerned about health. We don't seem to be terribly concerned about how much wine the CEO drinks or whether he breaks his leg skiing at Chamonix. We are far more worried about these other people who are typically lower income um, and often living extremely stressful lives at the margin. So we noticed that most wellness program target individual behaviors and one of the most common targets is is weight but we've seen repeatedly most recently in the new york times series on obesity that weight loss is extremely difficult and maintaining weight loss is even harder because our biology may be working against us and overweight doesn't seem to reduce longevity and it may not even substantially increase healthcare costs It's not until you get to the really higher levels of obesity that there is a strong correlation between weight and disease. Uh, An interesting study published this year in Health Affairs compared financial incentives to lose weight with a control group. And some received immediate financial rewards of $550, some for next year, some within a lottery, and the control group received nothing. And it was a long study. It was long for these kinds of studies, 12 months. Um, And at the end of 12 months, there was no difference in the weight changes of these four groups. At the end of 12 months, no matter what the incentive, they all lost an average of, are you ready? One pound. Oh dear. Uh, We don't know how to lose weight, and we don't know how to maintain weight loss without starving and spending all day exercising. And we really don't know enough about whether being overweight poses serious risks and what we can do about it. Uh, But wellness programs focus heavily on weight loss. And the assumption is that if we can get everyone to lose weight, then we will solve all our problems. Um, Unfortunately, we haven't been able to test that theory because we haven't been able to get everyone. (laughs) There is one area where wellness programs do seem to help employee health. And that's with the management of chronic diseases. But that's not preventing chronic disease. That's ongoing and often costly care uh, for chronic disease. So that would be a good thing, but it's not likely to save us money. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. Uh, I'm in favor of encouraging people to stay healthy. And I don't think that the value of a wellness program should be measured by how much money it saves. But I do think the country can offer good preventive health programs without jeopardizing employment. And this is what concerns me about employer-based wellness programs, encouraging employers to monitor their employees' health unrelated to their capacity to perform a job. That's risky. There are too many temptations for employers to discriminate against people they don't like and to impose unaffordable costs on people who are barely making it in this economy. And there's there's little that the employee can do because proof of this kind of discrimination is extremely difficult, especially when so much of the population has bought the myth that people can really control their own health status.
0: And that was this week's Extra, The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Mariner for joining us. You can find Professor Mariner on Twitter at Wendy Mariner. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Our show notes are at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes, rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thanks for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy rest of the week.